This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, the first Bite Size Business Breakfast of the new year, where we and our guests have been gazing into the crystal ball to see what 2024 may hold for a variety of sectors that affect us most. That includes property. Of course, Sandra Henke is Managing Director of Market Intelligence and Research for Cavendish Maxwell and COO of Property Monitor. We asked him whether or not the rises of 2023 could hold for another year, and he had some good news for renters. Meanwhile, less good news when it comes to pay rises. David McKenzie is Managing Director of McKenzie Jones. We'll let him tell you why he thinks this year is not going to be great when it comes to salary increases keeping up with the cost of living. And what about stock markets? Keith Fitzgerald's joined us this morning from Seattle. Uh, He's been looking at what we might see from the Fed and whether markets might continue the runaway tear that we saw in 2023. All of that, plus the UAE's joined the BRICS group and we've had a decrease in petrol prices. Back to work, back to school on the business breakfast on the 2nd of January and waking up to a big economic story. And Brandy Scott, we are that brick. Yeah, we are that brick, as are a couple of other countries. The BRICS Group of Nation, uh, new acronym still to be decided, um, has doubled in size. What was Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa uh, now has us. It has the guys next door in Saudi. It's got the two E's of Egypt and Ethiopia and it has Iran. Yeah, so... BRICS-U. Yes, BRICS-U. So it made perfect sense when it was Brazil, Russia, India, China back in 2001. Jim O'Neill, the economist at Goldman Sachs, coined that phrase. Then they added South Africa. Didn't make sense economically to me, but it did make sense, if you like, linguistically, because brick became (laughs) bricks. But now we're just all over the place, aren't we, in terms of our acronyms? But are we all over the place in terms of our economic thinking. Well, let's briefly hear from inside the UAE's economic machine. This idea was first mooted over the summer. There was a big BRIC meeting in South Africa. And then it was announced by Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa, who was hosting that, well, six countries at the time, also Argentina, had been invited to join. Argentina has decided against it, but the others have now joined the BRIC. This was Abdullah bin Tukal Mari, UAE economy minister at the time, so summer of last year, talking on Bloomberg television about why the UAE might want to join. Well, this membership is a huge for the UAE. UAE has always been in the last 50 years working on the multilateralism aspect. We want peace and prosperity, and with that comes economy and comes trade. And I get it, because we like being part of these big multilateral events, don't we? We've got a big delegation at Davos in a couple of weeks' time. We, we're not in the G20, but we're an observer of the G20. We send a Sherpa to all these things, COP, Expo. We just like being part of these events, don't we? But what's your take on it? 
It, well, the argument is, do you think we still need the BRICS? It was set up to basically expand the power of the non-Western world, if you like, to bring another voice to the table um, and to multiply that voice, if you like, by having a, a bunch of, of members, the idea being that you are stronger together. Some would argue that that shift is happening naturally anyway. So do we still need the group to do it? There have been questions about how much it has achieved. And yet on the other side... There are those who say if we bring the economic power, particularly of the UAE and Saudi Arabia to this group, it's going to achieve an awful lot more. You've been speaking to an economist about this, haven't you? Uh, Our economist of the morning, our economist for the first working day of the new year is Jeanne Walters from Emirates NBD. She's been talking through what it is going to mean for our two economies here in the Gulf. The UAE and Saudi Arabia have now officially joined the BRICS bloc after receiving an invitation along with four other countries as part of the BRICS summit held in Johannesburg in August last year. In the first instance, this inclusion is an acknowledgement by the existing BRIC nations as to the importance and role played by the UAE and Saudi Arabia in the global economy. While it is difficult to quantify the value of BRICS membership, in principle, membership of the bloc may make it easier to negotiate favourable terms on trade and investment deals and in so doing may open up large BRICS markets to both the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So what will it mean for the other countries in the BRICS group and indeed the reputation and strength of the group as a whole? While the expansion of the BRICS bloc presents potential opportunities for new members in terms of market access, it could also create opportunities for the original members. In a similar vein, they too potentially get preferential trade deals and they could also possibly benefit from FDI flows out of KSA and the UAE. And of course, that million dirham question, how relevant is BRICS still today? The expansion plan for the BRICS bloc set out at the Johannesburg summit includes a desire to increase the bloc's global influence. Just looking at the numbers, the addition of these six countries into the BRICS bloc means that the group now accounts for over a third of world GDP and around 46% of the population, as well as materially increasing the bloc's share of oil production. And those shares may rise further, with South African President Cyril Ramaphosa indicating that these invitations were only the first part of a larger expansion plan. Jean Walters, economist at Emirates NBD. I'm not convinced. What about you? Yeah, you are a BRICS sceptic, aren't you? I am. I don't see the point. I don't think we need it. I think it was brilliant 21 years ago when the phrase was coined, Brazil, Russia, India, China. They sat naturally together. They were very big economies, very big populations, fast-growing emerging markets. They had real synergies. South Africa was never a natural fit for that. Too small, not fast-growing. And adding this weird... Well, Argentina decided against it. So you've got the UAE and Saudi Arabia, very wealthy, fast-growing countries. Iran, which is a story unto itself. Then you've got Ethiopia and Egypt. I don't see a common culture. I don't you don't see a, see a common currency, which I don't think is still on the table for BRICS, is it? I don't think, I don't think it is, no. I, I just don't see it. Even Jim O'Neill is scratching his head at this one, the guy who, who coined the phrase 21 years ago. He's no longer at Goldman Sachs. He's now an independent economist. But this is his take on expanding BRICS. Just trying to expand to other countries for the sake of symbolically having a rival to the West, it doesn't really serve much purpose beyond this enormous symbolism, in my view. Just by meeting once a year and saying all these grandiose things, including from some of them, Remarkable comments about trying to have a new BRICS currency 
these things aren't really going to achieve much other than to make them feel good uh, at the time of when they say those comments. Jim O'Neill, The Economist. Right, let's turn to another economic story. A little bit more down-to-earth, this one. We have new petrol prices for the month of January. Noni Edwards from the ARN News Centre has stuck around. Morning, Noni. Hello. Getting cheaper. Yes, uh, it was a very happy new year for motorists on the roads. Uh, The Fuel Price Committee announced that petrol and diesel across the board would be reduced for this month. So Super 98 will now cost 282. That's compared to last month being 296 dirhams per litre. Special 95s dropped to 271 per litre. E plus 91 costs 264 now. That's compared to 277 last month. And diesel is at three dirhams even compared to 3.19. Brandy, you've been looking into this and again speaking to Jean Waters, the economist, about it. Yeah, whom the last time we discussed uh, inflation and petrol prices with Jean, um, she said that she expected the petrol prices to come down, that there was a bit of a lag between what was happening in the oil markets around the world um, and what we were seeing. So she was predicting a drop. She explains to us here why we've got one. Retail fuel prices in the UAE will be lower in January. This decline has been driven by the lower average oil prices we've seen in December when compared to November. Mid-grade petrol prices will decline to 2.71 dirhams a litre, down 4.9% month-on-month from 2.85 dirhams a litre in December. Diesel prices will also be lower, falling to 3 dirhams a litre. The transport component carries a relatively sizable weight in the Dubai CPI, meaning that the reduction in fuel prices should act as a drag on the aggregate consumer price inflation reading in January. Sean Walters there, my car is literally on zero. In fact, it's below zero at the moment so i'm going to fill up there's a petrol station just by media city you'll see me there about 10 30 ish 11 o'clock this morning so i will literally know how much a full tank in my car is because it is bang on the red do you know what i have used that exact same petrol station they gave me a new um not the technical term oil container uh the day before christmas jerry can um because i know it goes in the front of the ca- I'm, I'm not going to <laughs> It's where the engine oil goes. It's plastic. It goes in the front of the car. They were fabulous. They're lovely blokes. Um, but I ended up fueling up just before the uh, the price drop. Oh. Although for my car, that's probably about a dirham and a half it, difference. It's a Mars bar and a can of coke, isn't, isn't it? it? This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Staying with the markets now. Let's get some tips somewhere to invest your hard-earned cash in 2024. Keith Fitzgerald is the principal of the Fitzgerald Group, an investment advisory firm based in Seattle on the west coast of the United States. He stayed up late to speak to us and he joins us now live. Morning, Keith. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So let's start with the bigger picture. Bumper year for US stocks in 2023. 24% increase for the main index, the S&P 500. There are those, perhaps myself included, who think that the US stock market is now perhaps a little bit overvalued and we've missed the train. But you think otherwise? I do think otherwise. There are a number of factors here that are not logical. They're not comfortable. And I think they're going to catch a lot of people by surprise. There may be five 
eight, even $10 trillion on the sidelines. The Fed is going to get benched mid-year in 2024. And finally, AI, which came into the public consciousness in good measure in 2023, I think is going to come into its own as companies begin to leverage that worldwide, the impact of which is going to be trillions of dollars to the positive side as that introduces the lexicon. Well, let's talk about a couple of those bigger picture themes first of all. You mentioned the Federal Reserve there, uh, but also your thesis. I was looking at your, your website this morning, Five with Fits, and you say there will be more profits created in the next 10 years than the last 50 combined. I like that quote. Another quote of yours that I like from a recent TV interview you did. You've been critical of the Fed for the past few months on this show and others. You say the Fed is so far out to lunch it's an insult to people who are out to lunch. <laughs> yes, you know, and here's the thing, right? They are not stupid. They're actually very, very intelligent individuals. The problem that the Fed has is the same as many other central banks around the world. They are playing with financial models and statistics that were created to measure a manufacturing economy that no longer exists. So when you have the blossoming of digital knowledge and digital transformation like we have today, these models are not only trapped in the past, but they are rearward looking. What the central banks around the world need to be doing, including the Fed, is they need to be looking forward and they need to be making strategic decisions. Because if they were doing that, we would have a very different calculus on hand. So if we are going to make more wealth in the next 10 years than the past half a century, happy days, the question is, how do we capture it, whether we're sitting in Seattle like you or, or Dubai like us? And one of the debates you've been weighing into is the passive investment, buying ETF tracker funds, versus active investment. And it's got quite heated lately, hasn't it? And you have strong views on this. I do. You know, the, the interesting thing is diversification has worked for a very long period of time, but it has not worked for the last decade. And the reason is this is a lot like buying cable television, for example. You've got to buy one channel that you really don't want to watch to get the two or three that you do. And so if you're going to index, you're probably going to do OK. But the rise of passive investing is actually holding many investors back. That's why Warren Buffett doesn't do it. That's why Ray Dalio doesn't do it. That's why Ron Barron doesn't do it. That's why I don't do it. If you can pick the best companies in their space, the ones that are growing, that make must-have products and services, then it stands to reason you are going to do considerably better than the indices. That's where I weigh in on the audience. The danger is, though, that some people will get their investment advice and start stock picking on Instagram or TikTok. And you've warned of the rise of the so-called Finfluencer. Oh, my goodness. This is a terrible conundrum for many, many people because, you know, the, the Internet has given everybody with a, a camera and a microphone a voice. And, you know, that's great on many levels. But a recent study from Switzerland, in fact, found that they reviewed, I think, 29,000 Finfluencers. We call them furus. 56% gave anti-skilled advice, meaning they gave advice to their viewers, readers and watchers that was directly contrary to sound financial principles in the financial markets. So, you know, the Internet unfortunately has unleashed a torrent of bad information. But the good thing for savvy investors is there's actually a very straight, direct path forward. This isn't rocket science. There's a very select group of companies that are at the very top of their game. Those are the ones that are going to be there in 5, 10, 15 years when you need your money. They're the ones that are going to create the profits, not the companies that are out on the margin. Well, let's talk about some of those. You are staying with tech. You like Apple. You like Microsoft. 
Absolutely, without a doubt. Apple is very straightforward. They are introducing things that we couldn't have even dreamed of 10, 20 years ago. They can add billions of dollars to the top line at a touch of a button because of the ecosphere. The iPhone is not a phone. The iPhone is a sensor platform. It's going to handle medicine. It's going to handle your life. It's going to handle your banking. It's going to handle your hotel, your car, all sorts of things in the future. Microsoft's taking the opposite tact. It's going with AI. They're not a company that's about software like people think. They're about bringing the world together. And they're doing it with AI being introduced through all of their platforms, their word processing, their jobs, their smart boards. All of that is going to work together. So these two companies are at the very top, the very pinnacle of where investors should be thinking about things. A gesundheit to my colleague Brandy Scott in the studio. It is very cold in here this morning. We've got a couple more minutes with you. In terms of the artificial intelligence trend, you mentioned that at the top of the hour. How do we play this? Do we just buy shares of NVIDIA, the chip maker? What do we do? Well, that's an interesting one. You know, you can go after the needle or you can go after the haystack, right? You know, so I believe that AI has got a couple different facets. People are making a mistake right now. It's going to cost them dearly. They're thinking about it just as another technology. But in fact, it's an enabler. It is going to impact every industry from your gas station to your laundromat to all of the big tech companies. You can buy the chips. You can buy the software. You can buy the cloud. This is the perfect nexus. We've been, we don't see this, but once in our investing lifetimes, maybe twice if we're lucky. This is on par with the introduction of penicillin, electricity, distributed power, even the internet itself. Finally, let's get to what you're calling the buy of the decade, a stock that you think Uh is so unloved and so undervalued that it is a screaming buy. It's a household name, but it is not a technology company. I shall let you, Keith, announce your buy of the decade. Oh, you're very kind. So this is possibly the most hated stock on Wall Street, certainly among the most hated here in the United States at the moment, but it is on the verge of becoming a tech company. This is Pfizer. It is one of the world's largest pharmacological companies. It made headlines for all of its COVID-related shenanigans. Now, some people like that, some people don't, but they're developing a tremendous oncology portfolio. They've got hundreds of drugs in the pipeline. They've got a number more specifically related to oncology. We're on the verge of solving many of humanity's most challenging problems. I think this company is so beaten up, so beaten down that it can't help but go up, particularly if you look at where the world's health situation is today. But why has Pfizer performed so badly? We mentioned over the past year, the S&P 500 is up by 24%. Pfizer is down by 44%. I know it, you know, and I own it. I'm not particularly pleased with the way it's performing. But also, this all this depends on perspective, right? This is one of those stocks that got way ahead of itself because of COVID. And now, with all of the other investing themes out there, the technology, the cybersecurity, defense industry, there are simply better places to put your money. So you got two choices as an investor. You can bail out, which is what the weak money has done, or you can look behind the scenes and the strong money continues to buy. So I'm content to hopefully buy more shares. I hope I'm smart enough to do that because one of these days, the attention is going to turn right back to companies like Pfizer. Keith, we're going to have to leave it there. Really appreciate you staying up late to speak to us today. The thoughts of Keith Fitzgerald joining us live from Seattle there. He is with the Fitzgerald Group. Dubai Eye 103.8 presents an array of independent expert opinions and does not advise one particular view. Always seek independent legal advice which considers your own personal circumstances. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We're in our first show of a new year. We are gazing into our crystal ball. Our crystal ball, crystal ball. 
Right, David McKenzie, Managing Director of Recruitment Specialist Mackenzie Jones. Tell us, when it comes to pay this year, is life going to be beautiful or no. not? Excellent. <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way, but I think we're going to see some very minimal pay increases, maybe 4 to 5%. Bear in mind the cost of living and, and generally here is around sort of 14, 15%. I think it's going to be a tough year for some people. How come? I think the, the reality is Q3 for us was a fairly okay time. Q4 has been buoyant in the recruitment business and we've had a very good year. But I see 2024, the first half doing very well, but I think the second half will be quieter. You know, you're seeing in America that they're predicting a, a tightening of the job market. Europe's struggling a bit at the moment. And we're seeing a lot of people coming here from Europe to escape those markets. Right. So are we talking about the increased population having an effect on those wages? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're seeing a lot of people coming from Hong Kong, from Singapore, from Europe, who are coming here often without jobs, just literally coming here. And that is depressing some of the job market. Okay. Talk to me about what we are seeing then in terms of the number of jobs that are being created, the yeah. opportunities. I think there's a lot at the moment. And, and the good news is certainly Q, 2023 for us was a really good year. We saw probably an increase on the previous year by about 25% in terms of just job numbers. Um, the downsides of that, the job market in terms of people moving the process from start to finish was very long, three or four months to get a start uh, start of the process to actually taking the offer. Long time. Why is that getting longer? I think the, the problem at the moment is the power has gone to the clients. Candidates are no longer um, in short supply. There's so many candidates out there, very good quality people. So clients are picking and choosing and they're taking their time. Do you expect that cycle to get even longer this year? I think so, yeah. Look, we've seen... We, we're, we're already ahead, so we know what our Q1 is already going to look like because we have starters in Q1. But I think Q2 and Q3, you'll see it elongated, and I think it'll start slowing down in June time. What are you seeing when people are sitting down in the interview process? Is there a difference money-wise between what existing and new residents want? Yeah, uh, there is a definite advantage on being a long-term resident here, people who've got experience here. There's a real push towards Arab speakers at the moment, and the biggest thing we're having throughout 2024 will be amortisation. Because we've got education now with a target in that sector as well. Yeah. I mean, education, we're, we're predominantly, we recruit head office functions. So we're typically HR, finance, legal, etc. We're recruiting for quite a few schools at the moment for senior roles, CEOs, HR directors, etc. But there's a big influx at the moment of very good quality people as well. Let's have a look at what sectors we're likely to see the, the most job creation mm. in. Where, where is the most activity? Oddly enough, the, the, the biggest growth for us this year, or 2023, were um, family-owned businesses, so not multinationals. We had a lot of growth in some of the big uh, family groups, certainly here and in Saudi Arabia. They've really taken the chance to get some very good quality people on board. What does that tell us about what's happening in the, in the economy and their own expansion? Well, the, the interesting thing, I talked to a couple of my retailers recently, they're all slowed down their recruitment. Q4, hardly any of them recruited through us. Um, and they're predicting Q1 and Q2 to have minimal growth. So, but we've had some of the family diversified groups doing quite well. Construction, engineering seems to be quite good. Hospitals, healthcare, those sorts of areas have been very good for us. Uh, what roles are you seeing more in demand at the moment? What specialisations? Uh, for us, HR has been booming. HR and sales and marketing have been really good this year. So I, I think in HR terms, uh, I usually place per year maybe 20 HR directors. We place this year 28. Really good. It's been a great year for us.
OK, flip side of that, where do you expect activity and interest to slow? I think um, the areas we've seen people slowing down are the finance sectors. We've seen uh, less finance directors hired. Uh, our tech sectors have been quieter. Um, but we've seen a lot more GM roles coming up, um, certainly with some of the family groups. And HR has been our, our shining star this year. Sales and marketing, I think, this coming year will be very good because companies will be pushing, trying to get more sales through the door with less staff. Cheery. Yeah. Well, look, uh, let me put a, a positive spin on this. 2023 was a really good year for us. I think t- the first half of 2024 will be very good. But as a candidate, you need to be realistic. Don't just go for money. You know, some people are, are I want a 30% increase. You're not going to get that. Go for the right company that gives you a long-term career. That's the key thing for us at the moment. Are you having to look outside for any of these candidates or are you seeing them already here or coming to you? Um, I reckon 80% of our hires last year were from here. So if you're a UAE candidate, you've got experience here, you're, you're, that's what people need. Trying to bring in talent is, is less and less of a, a key requirement for us, unless it's a very skilled one. So, for example, comp and bens here is quite difficult to find, compensation benefits. We're exporting from South Africa and parts of Europe as well. When we talk about job creation, I know during COVID, um, the, the war in, in, in Ukraine, mm. other conflicts um, have meant that companies have been relocating staff from international offices. Is that finished or is that still continuing? It's finished. I mean, I know a lot of companies brought in staff. The right thing to do, they brought them in, supported them uh, and put them into good roles here. Now that's stopped. Um, we're not seeing such a growth in terms of importing people from there. You mentioned compensation and benefits. I know we've talked about salary rises for mm. 2023. Um, what about the the package as a whole? The packages are okay. I mean, we saw at the beginning of last year, we actually saw a decrease in a lot of the packages. People were getting squeezed a lot. For example, we're, we're rarely seeing education now. Housing allowance has completely disappeared. So what clients are now doing, they're offering more flex packages where they'll give you a basic and they give you maybe 50 or 60,000 per year, which you can use on schooling, um, healthcare, whatever you want to use. It's much more of a, so it benefits single people and people with families. How much of the change in the way that gratuities are going to be calculated has come into that, do you think? I think, to be honest, that's not my area of expertise, so I, I can't really comment on it. But I know a lot of clients now are trying to look at how they can retain people through LTIPs, long-term incentive programs, or short-term incentive programs, rather than just relying on gratuity and things like that. So we're seeing clients being a bit, bit, bit smarter about how they retain their talent. And for that talent, you say there's a lot more competition for jobs, mm. that employers are holding the, the cards. Is it a good year then to go job hunting or not? Uh, you know what, Randy? I think about 80% of our active population are looking for jobs. And when I say active, they're... They've got a, a sort of weathered eye looking out for things. They're, they're signing up with recruitment companies. They're starting to network with people like us. So that when the right job comes up, then we typically go to those people. So we, we, we use LinkedIn, obviously, as everyone does. But we also rely on, on our referral network. So if somebody's out there looking and we get referred, we often place them in jobs. And David McKenzie, Managing Director of Recruitment Specialist, McKenzie Jones, expecting to see four-ish, five-ish percent pay rises this year. He says it won't keep up with the cost of living. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where in the first business breakfast of the new year, we have our crystal ball out and we are gazing into it to see what 2024 may hold. It's going to be a... Can 
and the rise and rise and rise that we've seen in the property market here in Dubai continue. So Andrew Hinkey is the Director of Market Intelligence and Research for Cavendish Maxwell. He's also the CEO of Property Monitor. Zahan, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Morning and Happy New Year. Indeed. What will 2024 look like? Let's start with uh, ready properties, houses and apartments already standing. We passed the market peak of the last cycle, didn't we, Um, in the last quarter of the year when it came to price per square foot. How much higher can that go? Million Durham questions, Brandy. Um, look, it's it's last year was phenomenal. It set records on, on, on all levels. Um, how much further is it going to go? I think you're going to see slower appreciation throughout the years, both on the sales market and the rental market. Um, single digit growth probably by the end of the year, but you're going to see some downward pressure probably coming mid year as we see a lot more handovers start to come on. Where are we going to see that downwards pressure most? Which sectors both sort of geographically and in terms of property type? Sure. Um, so villas and townhouses, uh, ready market, is where you're going to primarily see it in the beginning. You already have. Um, but the, pr- the pressure on prices has sort of already been exerted. It's coming down. Property sitting on the market longer and longer. Uh, sellers trying to be too aggressive with price and buyers just not chasing it. So we're already seeing that. In the apartment market, not so much yet, except for some of your key communities like your business bay, Dubai Marina. Um, probably later in the year you'll see that. Um, Off-plan launches is a completely different story, but in that ready market, um, villas and townhouses in all the main communities, probably not so much in the periphery ones, um, there's probably a little bit more to go, um, but your Arabian ranches, those sort of established communities, expect to see them taper off. A lot of chatter about people looking to sell and exit the market in the thought that there is a drop coming. So sell while we're still relatively high, buy when the price is cool. Clever thinking or very risky? It's just like trying to time any part of the market. When's the best time to buy? At the absolute bottom, but you don't know you're there until you're a couple of quarters past. It's just like, when's the best time to sell? At that absolute top, but you don't know until you've seen it slide down. We're at all-time record high prices right now. Likely see slower appreciation coming in. Now would be a good time to exit, but the question is, where are you exiting to? Right? Are you going to find another property that fits your budget? Are you expat- Are you repatriating? Um, What's going on there? I think you're going to see an increase in people trying to exit right now, but it's really going to depend on what they list at. Plenty of properties on the market. I expect you're going to see more coming on the market, but how many of those are going to be in the market? And we've spoken to a couple of people in the the sales game. I know Lewis Allsop's been one of them about having to control sellers' expectations when it comes to prices. Yeah, Lewis was spot on with this last month, right? Sellers will always try and push the boundaries. They'll also want to try their listing price sometimes, which could be the worst thing they can do. When you enter the market, those first couple of weeks are the best time to be on. You're going to see days on market increase, right? That's going to be a slowing of the market. Right now, we're under 30 days, days on market for most listings. Once you start seeing that creep up to 60, 90, that's when you're really going to start to see some slowdown happening. What about the the volume of sales? Again, records in 2023. What are you expecting for 2024? Massive records in 2023. I mean, we, we almost hit 130. We surpassed 130,000, which is up 35,000 in the year before. I do not expect that trend to continue, particularly in the ready market. I think in the off-plan market, with the amount of launches and the interest there, you'll keep seeing high numbers in off-plan. But you're going to see that resale market, that ready market, really start to slow down. Again, more people coming on the market, testing price points, prices already being at super high there. Unless sellers get the numbers right on their prices, you're going to see a downward trend in those transactions. 
I wouldn't be surprised if we don't cross over 100,000 in 2024. What about the off-plan? You've mentioned the market there. Will we still see the pace of new launches that we saw in 2023? So the pace going into the year, definitely. Right? We're tracking last year, I think we're, we're still crunching the numbers for it, but close to 100,000 new properties came to market. Um, we're tracking another 150 projects. Those units themselves could be anywhere between 35 to 50,000 once we work out the, the makeup of each one of those. So that's already in the pipeline coming. They're planned, the land's acquired, there's, there's plans in place. They're going to come to market in Q1, Q2. More developers will be coming in. This is when the smaller guys come in, the newer developers, they come in because the market's doing well. What will happen is you'll get those launches coming. And I think when the summer comes, you'll start to see a lot of people start readdressing. I think also what's coming to market's really going to change. Ultra luxury and luxury last year was in the headlines almost on a daily basis, right? Huge price per square foot's coming on, ultra branded luxury residents coming on. They're starting to taper off. I think you're going to see a shift back to the mid-market and upper mid-market on a price per square foot basis and a slowdown in that ultra luxury segment. What about handovers? Yes, lots coming. Um, we're looking at probably around forty to 60,000, big range, right? Once we look at a materialization rate, let's say about 50,000 units potentially coming to market this year. Previous years, we've sort of been around 25, 30,000. So doubling that, when they come to market, who's going to occupy them, right? Are they investor units where someone's going to rent them? Or are they going to be back on the market for sale? We don't know. But those coming on, we need to have the population in place to do it. So last year, population grew by about 104,000. There's a growth rate of just below 3%. Nice, strong number. Average household size is just over four. So if we're looking at population growth to handle 50,000 units, that puts us at about 200,000 in population we need. That will be doubling the growth rate in population this year to handle the handovers that are coming on throughout the year. Is that going to happen? I, that's, a, that's a big number. Doubling anything is a big number. Well, let's look at what might happen to those properties as they come on market. First off, flipping. People who have bought them speculatively because they want to sell them at a profit what kind of market will they be selling into? Throughout the early stage of the year, I think the market's going to be strong for that. Anything that's actually handing over this year, they're probably going to make a good premium on. The speculative activity that I'm more concerned about is those buying earlier and expecting to exit a year and a half, two years or more before handover. That's where people are going to get burned. Right? It's a risky game. They're coming in late to the market and off plan considering by now, two, three, three and a half years before that turns over. Look at the population numbers and the other launches and handovers we're going to have. 50,000 is the beginning. Next year, could be another 50, 60. Once we get 26, we're probably looking close to 100,000 units coming to market. If the household size stays the same, that means we're probably looking at 500,000 plus increase in population to handle what's coming to the market in those years. Okay, so what is that stock coming physically onto the, the rental market, those that aren't being lived in, aren't being um, resold to live in. What does it mean for rents this year? You mentioned that they might soften. We've got a minute left with you. What do you expect to so see? This is where some of the good news, no, it's bad news, right? You're going to have properties coming on. You're going to have more occupancy, right? That's going to take some pressure off. Look at the villa and townhouse market. It's hard to find a unit right now. Or it was. It's getting easier. As more projects hand over, more inventory comes in, that supply gets dispersed. So you're going to have more de less demand, more supply coming in. So you're going to see downward pressure on rents, downward pressure on yields. So the good news for renters is because of these handovers coming in, you're going to have more opportunity, more options out there to rent. 
And it might actually start to throw that rent versus buy equation back in the favor of renting as that downward pressure comes on rental rates while sales prices still stay relatively high. Zahan Jahinki joining us this morning, looking in the property crystal ball to tell us what we might see this year. Director of Market Intelligence and Research for Cavendish Maxwell, the CEO of Property Monitor. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.